Hi. If you're here today, you're here for evaluating claims for permanency exposure in New York. We're going to walk you through the process today of how we, as your attorneys, uh, evaluate claims for exposure, both scheduled loss of uses and loss of wage earning capacity cases. This is completely and totally live. Uh, so uh, feel free to ask me questions as we go through. I'll be uh, seeing the questions pop up over here. At the end, I'll be responding to all the questions that I can. I will not say your full name. I'll just say your first name. I'll read the question, and then we'll do it all together. Uh, so feel free, as we're going along, to ask me any questions you'd like about how we evaluate cases for exposure. Um, we're going to talk about the disability duration guidelines, and that is how we uh, evaluate cases for exposure in New York, how the uh, medical providers are supposed to anyway. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to spend a lot of time today talking about permanent total disability cases because they're relatively easy. Permanent total disability, it's payable for life at 66% uh, of the average weekly wage, relatively straightforward. I'm going to spend a lot of time today talking about loss of wage earning capacity and a little bit of time, about uh, three or four or five minutes, about scheduled loss of uses. Okay, let's begin. Let's do what's easy first, because I like to do what's easy first. Uh, what's easy is scheduled loss of use. That's hand, finger, feet, and toes. Uh, all of the values are in terms of weeks. Uh, the way that uh, the uh, values are set forth are in uh, on a sort of a chart. I've put the chart into today's handout materials. If you didn't receive the handout materials, you can download them right now during the webinar. They, are, they should be a, a button somewhere and you can click and download these materials. In the appendix is this uh, same schedule that you're looking at right now. And I like to call this sort of like a butcher's list. Uh, this is the legislature, the New York State Legislature, in its infinite wisdom uh, over 100 years ago, coming up with a list of every single body part and how many weeks of uh, how many weeks that would be compensable for. Uh, how we get to the overall exposure in New York is we have a medical impairment, which comes from the disability duration guidelines. That should be the result of a review of medical records, uh, a history of the claimant's complaints, and then a physical examination. Um, and that is multiplied, that medical impairment percentage is multiplied uh, times and becomes a number of weeks, which is then multiplied times the 66% uh, of the average weekly wage subject to the statutory's maximum and minimums, and that equates to our overall exposure for scheduled loss of use. They're relatively straightforward. The um, ratings for most of the, the injuries that we see all the time, that's hand, fingers, feet, toes, knee injuries, shoulders, elbows, wrist injuries, um, they are really coming from range of motion studies. The physicians are using or should be using goinometers. These are uh, like relatively scientific-looking devices. They put it up against the claimant's body part. Uh, they ask the uh, claimant to go through uh, passive and active range of motion. Passive means the physician's actively uh, moving the person's body part and seeing how what kind of range they can get them to go through. Active is, of course, asking them to do it on their own. Uh, there is a little bit of credibility testing built into this. In other words, is the claimant malingering? Are they just simply pretending that this uh, you know, injury or their range of motion is more limited or not? But after the doctor finds these range of motions and tests the function, they should be testing things like grip strength, et cetera. They put it on this form, which is a C-4.3. Um, this form uh, requires that the physician identify exactly the body part that they evaluated, what the percentage of impairment. Most of the time, uh, the doctors do not write narratives on these C-4.3. Most of the time, they just say, hey, see my report. Uh, that percentage of impairment uh, equates to a number of weeks. And that number of weeks is then multiplied by their 66% uh, of their average weekly wage, again, subject to maximums and minimums. 
the thing that makes every client cry and uh, the reason these exposures have gone up so much is because the maximum and minimums have doubled since 2007 when the reforms were put in place. At that time, 2007, the maximum rate was $400 per week. Now it's well over $800 per week, so the same injury is worth double what it was worth uh, just nine years ago at the time of the reforms. So this is not something that's germane to any one employer. Everybody is exposed this way, and that's why these scheduled loss of uses have gone up so high. Uh, again, they're coming from that chart that is attached to today's handout materials. Uh, New York also has a concept called protracted healing, and this is um, a concept in which the legislature has said every body part, every injury has a sort of standard number or an expected number of recovery time. And if the person's temporary total disability exceeds this sort of standard recovery time and becomes protracted, uh, then there is an additional compensation which would be added on top of whatever the uh, medical impairment uh, was found. This serves to increase exposure. So if someone has an arm injury and they're out of work, temporarily totally disabled for more than 32 weeks, we would be adding additional weeks onto their award, uh, which serves to increase exposure. We're going to talk a little bit more at the end about what we can do to mitigate scheduled loss of use findings because they're very high. Um, I know that your clients, your insureds, are going to be very annoyed about them because uh, in the case of the person who sustains an arm fracture, a knee injury like a meniscal tear, and then comes back to work, they'll often come back to work doing the same job. Uh, they'll be coming back and, and maybe they're working just as, just as they did before with no helper, no assistant. They're doing the same work. Now they're asking you for overtime. Maybe they're getting their raises. And, you know, the workers' comp carrier is paying out sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 for these injuries. And you're saying, well, what's the actual medical impairment here? What, how could that be? Uh, how could this person be back at work doing the same job or, and earning maybe even more money, but they got this huge award in workers' compensation? And we've been hearing that more and more ever since the schedule loss of use um, awards got higher and higher, again, because the state maximums have gone up so dramatically. Uh, so that's something we'll talk about. Uh, we're doing a lot of very aggressive things, including videotaping the claimants who have returned to work and showing that they're able to carry out their job completely unimpaired, unhindered, doing the same job, uh, maybe even working harder, working even more overtime than they did before the loss, to try to show these physicians, hey, um, we know that you know on paper, this is the, the range of motion shows that they might have a slight diminution, but look, here's them at work, they're doing fine, uh, can you adjust your report accordingly? So we could talk a little bit about that if anybody has any questions about that. All right, let's talk about the meat and bones, uh, or the, the really uh, weighty issue, which I find to be loss of wage earning capacity uh, findings. Now, loss of wage earning capacity findings are for those body parts which are not covered under the schedule, <clears throat> which means everything that's not a hand, finger, feet, toe, arm, shoulder, elbow. And what we're really talking about where we're really dealing with this is in the case of low back claims, thoracic spine claims, cervical spine claims, respiratory disorders, psychiatric claims. Um, and i got to be frank, I mean, I have a prejudice. I've been at this for 16, almost 17 years, doing nothing but workers' comp defense, and I am just so skeptical of the low back claims. I'm so skeptical of the single-level disc herniation claims or disc bulge claims, uh, and particularly the unoperated ones. I'm so skeptical of them. But those are still eligible for big awards in New York, and let's talk about how that happens. So in New York in 2007 had a huge reform, and part of this reform was to cap the number of benefit weeks available for a permanent partial disability benefit. Uh, that's great because before 2007 there was no cap, 
you could have a 10% loss of wagering capacity, and you can get paid that for the rest of your life. And for young claimants, that could be a very long time. Now it's capped, and as you can see, the chart goes up to 99% disability, 525 weeks, but let's be frank, above 75% disability, uh, claimants are eligible to claim that they are totally industrially disabled. So really, your, your chart goes from about 225 weeks up to about 425 weeks. And as you can see on this chart, and this is the chart, by the way, that you'll see all the time, uh, you'll see it this, presented exactly this way, a loss of wage earning capacity on the left, on the right, the maximum weeks of benefits. This is the chart that the board shows you that you can find when you look in um, different treatises or summaries of the law. And I think it's very misleading uh, because it doesn't show you actually how flat the benefit uh, is in New York. So let me show you something uh, a little bit later on in our presentation that's going to really sort of put this in perspective. But this is uh, the uh, chart of maximum benefit weeks where the caps kick in. All right. How do we get to overall exposure in New York? First, it's a rate. Okay. We'll talk about the rate. The rate is based on medical impairment alone times a number of capped weeks. And again, Here's where the capped weeks are coming from. They're coming from the chart published by the legislature saying 15% disability is worth 225 weeks, okay? Uh, and that rate times the number of capped weeks equals your indemnity exposure. Now, of course, I'm not going to talk about the cost of medical. Understand that we're talking about exposure, and when I'm giving my clients exposure estimates and analysis, I'm always, you know, using my lawyer weasel words. I'm saying, well, this is a very preliminary estimate of exposure, and I never include, really, the cost of medicals because it's really beyond uh, my capacity or competence to sort of tell you what uh, the future cost is uh, for something like a maybe a prospective surgery this person could have five or six years from now. So when we're talking about exposure today, I'm going to be talking about indemnity. Own, uh, 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 exposure alone. Um, <clears throat> here's the, st uh, the steps we go through in litigating uh, loss of wage earning capacity. Now remember, we talked about schedule loss of use. It's really their doctor comes up with a number uh, based on range of motion studies. Our doctor comes up with a number. You know, we fist fight about it. I cross-examine their doctor. They cross-examine mine. We put it before a law judge and the judge makes a call. Uh, with loss of wage earning capacity, it's a little bit different. First step, has maximum medical improvement been reached? Well, this is uh, disgusting to report this to you. Uh, around the time of the uh, reforms in 2007, statistics came out saying that the average case uh, that was going for loss of wage earning capacity, so these are low backs, thoracic, cervicals, psychs, respiratories, the average case was taking 6.4 years to reach maximum medical improvement. I mean, that's ridiculous. Either we've got the worst doctors in New York in history, or there's something very wrong with our system. I think there's something very wrong with our system. Uh, but petition, uh, claimants were very, very, very resistant to reaching maximum medical improvement. The reason for that, by the way, is because there's no credit for temporary total disability or partial temporary disability benefits in a final loss of uh, wagering capacity award, right? So as a claimant, you're motivated to stay out of work forever if you can because it's not going to uh, impact your loss of wage earning capacity award. That's number one. Recently, the board's released new statistics that are saying that, oh, we've improved that. It's not 6.4 years to MMI. Now it's 4.8. Still disgusting, still wrong, still abusive, uh, still way out of whack with other states. I mean, a good counterexample uh, state is New Jersey, right across the river, almost the same exact employment and claimant population, and their average is under two years reaching maximum medical improvement. But let that be as it may. So step one in this process of reaching loss of wagering capacity and making that estimate of exposure is first, uh, has MMI been reached? And we're often litigating about that. Two, both sides get impairment ratings. We choose our physician. Obviously, we're choosing a physician who's less paternalistic or she's a little bit more conservative. 
uh, they're choosing a physician that their attorney is sending them to, and guess what? They're going to be very sympathetic to the claim and give them a lot of credit uh, for all their complaints. Uh, next, the judge is supposed to uh, consider functional ability, the vocational ability of the claimant, and then come to an overall determination of loss of wage earning capacity. And the way this works is the medical impairment number, these are their physicians versus our physicians, uh, comes up to a percentage, and that is multiplied by a number of those capped weeks. Those capped weeks are coming from that chart that we looked at a few minutes ago, and that is going to be our overall impairment. Now, the number of weeks is affected by the vocation and function. But let's Let's take a bigger picture look at this, because really when you look at this week's chart that I'm showing you right now, it's kind of hard to see uh, how this actually work, looks in reality. But here's how this looks in reality. This slide, I like to show this slide to people and show you how flat the benefits are in New York, right? 1% of disability in New York is worth 225 weeks of benefits. That's huge. That's like four and a half years of uh, benefits. Now, agreed, they're capped, right? It ends it four and a half years, that's still a huge amount. And then if you look at the rest of this chart, going, and I only went up to 75%, and the reason I did that is because really above 75%, the claimant's gonna be arguing that they're totally industrial disabled, that as a unit they can't work anymore because they got such a high degree of disability. But the difference is kind of striking that for 1% of disability, you get 225 weeks. And the difference between 15% and 20%, where it starts to ramp up again, uh, you know, 5% of disability is only worth 25 weeks. So the first 5% of disability is worth 225. And then as you go up in additional degrees of disability, each percentage of disability is actually worth less, right? It's a very flat chart. And when you really look at this chart, you realize they crammed all the benefits down into the bottom end of the chart. Really, the people with the least amount of disabilities are getting really the highest amount per, you know, uh, uh, for, their, for their disability. Here's another state, New Jersey, that I know very well because we have a very big New Jersey practice here. Look at 1% of disability in New Jersey. It's like $1,000, it's worth about a grand. And then as you go up that New Jersey chart, take a look at the way it kind of scales up. It kind of really turns up to the right, like a ski slope going up there. And that kind of makes sense. It actually um, comports with how I see reality where, you know, under 10, 15% of disability, these people are really, these are very minor levels of disability. And then you get above 30, 35%. Look at the difference in New Jersey between 30 and 35%. That's where it almost doubles. And then it really starts to go higher and higher and higher. Versus New York, it's very, very, very flat. Okay, they've crammed all the value down into the bottom of the chart. It's kind of wrong. Here's another way of looking at it. New Jersey, this year, 1% of disability is worth like 1300 bucks. okay? In New York, 1% of disability payable at the minimum rate, I'm just using the minimum rate that was in effect this year, $150, is worth like $33,000, okay? Again, what I'm talking about is slamming all of the value down to the bottom end of the chart. Uh, and, you know, that's just a big fundamental problem I have with this. But all right, let's move on. Let's talk about how these uh, loss of wage earning capacity uh, findings are actually made. Okay, so step one is maximum medical improvement. I told you before, the average case is 4.8 years before you actually get there. Also, in my experience, 17 years, uh, almost 17 years, sorry, I haven't seen a lot of New York physicians voluntarily releasing their patients and saying, oh, this is as good as you're going to get. Nope. There's always another test they want to do. They always want to do more physical therapy. Let me tell you a little secret. Nine years of physical therapy is not going to make you any better than one year of physical therapy, right? If we didn't get you there in the first year, we're probably not going to get you there with more back rubs and, and uh, you know, uh, exercising. That's not working. Regardless, so for the rest of this conversation, just imagine we've already reached maximum medical improvement, but I just want to be realistic and let you know that, hey, we're often litigating that issue of maximum medical improvement. All right, 
let's talk about the three steps that we're going through as your defense attorneys uh, to get the case to the loss of wage earning capacity findings. Step one, impairment ratings. Okay, This is us sending them to an IME physician. If you were here last month for our conversation, we talked about how to choose IME physicians, what type of IME physician you need for each kind of case, uh, how to pick them, what questions you sent them, all that stuff. So that, that is all coming from the physicians, impairment ratings. Next, functional ability. Uh, then uh, third, the judge is supposed to consider the vocational aptitudes, uh, the age, uh, the cross-training, transferable skills, et cetera, on the vocation side. And then finally, come up with an overall determination of loss of wagering capacity, which is expressed as a percentage. So let's talk about that. Step one, impairment ratings, okay? Both sides are going to get impairment ratings, and they are coming from the disability duration guidelines. When we're talking about a low back, uh, thoracic spine, cervical spine, psychiatric, respiratory, all these other uh, sort of inchoate body parts, that are not amenable to very simple range of motion testing, grip strength testing, you know, real uh, easy and obvious um, evaluations, the board, unfortunately, has had to come up with uh, quite detailed and quite complicated uh, uh, impairment rating and in severity ranking um, charts that the uh, evaluating physicians, both the treating or the claimant's evaluating physician and our evaluating physician are supposed to be going to to determine this. Now, let me tell you something. I've taken the training on this. Uh, I, I recommend it highly. I think it's actually good training that, that's offered by the board. Uh, you can go to their website um, and take the training on how to use the disability duration. It's pretty good. Uh, but we've done a ton, a ton, a ton of education, both of our adversaries and of the courts, the judges, to explain to them, hey, here's how these, these things actually work. Because the evaluating physician is supposed to be getting, first of all, has to know baseline. What's, what's wrong with this claimant? And let's talk about the case or the cases that really annoy me, that I have a personal axe to grind with, and these are like the single-level disc herniation, single-level disc bulge, typically unoperated with, you know, inquit sort of subjective, vague, uh, radiculopathies. You know, th these are the cases that were the people really just, this is like they're staying out of work, they just don't want to come back, um, and I'm very skeptical of them. I mean, just been at this for a bit. Maybe I've gotten a little bit jaded, uh, but we all know statistics. You take 100 people, you line them up against the wall, over 60 of them, 60 of those people statistically, are going to have asymptomatic herniations and uh, disc bulges in their back. It doesn't mean that they have a you know, dis disability or anything like that. It just means that this is their anatomy, right? Oftentimes, I do feel like when we're compensating people for disc bulges, low back disc bulges in particular, we're just compensating them for anatomy, but this is life. Um, severity ranking, let's get there, because I can go on this tangent forever and days and days and days and bother everybody. But um, step one, typically we're talking about uh, severity range of the impairment ranking, uh, sorry, the severity ranking, and it goes from A to J, J being the worst, A being like the minimum. And what do we always see? Our physicians um, going through the severity rankings, going to supplemental tables and coming back and going to that C-4.3 and putting on there a, you know, 11.2. That would be uh, table 11.2, so that's a, a, a back injury unoperated, and severity ranking A, the minimum. And what is their doctor find with the same exact physical exam, medical records, uh, and complaints, a J, which is the highest they can find. So both sides come back to the court, and we both have these very differing medical opinions. And again, I don't think I've ever seen a claimant side uh, uh, C-4.3 that had anything less than a J. They always give them the highest for these sort of inchoate subjective back complaints. All right, so let's imagine we're there. Both sides have the impairment ratings. What's next? 
functional ability. The judge is supposed to consider the functional ability of the claimant uh, in uh, determining their overall uh, uh, duration of their benefit. So uh, what do they do? Well, the doctors are supposed to fill out these functional assessments as part of the C-4.3 evaluation. Uh, what do I think claimants doctors do? I think they just ask the claimant, um, how much can you lift? How often, how long can you sit? How many miles can you walk? And the person just says, I can barely do anything. I can only lift two pounds. And the doctors just kind of write that in there. I think they are really just parroting the complaints of the claimant. They're not really um, independently verifying any of this. Um, we have sort of two things that we do uh, here to sort of combat that. First is, I think that this is a good opportunity for us to use all that video that we obtained, and we were trying to find this person being a fraud. And when I mean fraud, I mean a per se fraud, right? Like they're working while they were supposed to not be working, or they were competing in a softball league or something, and we put some surveillance on them. And we got the kind of surveillance that is not so exciting, or doesn't make us super duper happy. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The surveillance that I have to watch all the time, and all the attorneys here watch, and it's like the person gets up in the morning, and they go to the corner store, they buy lottery tickets, they buy cigarettes, they go to the next store, they buy some beer, they maybe drop their kids off at school, and then they go home, and they sit inside all day and watch Judge Judy, right? That's what they're doing all day, right? Um, and then you put another day of video on them, and guess what they're doing? The same thing. They wake up in the morning, they drop the kids off at the school, uh, they go buy their lottery tickets, they buy their cigarettes, they go home, uh, and they watch TV all day. Okay, we get it. That's what they're up to. Uh, and it's not really compelling and it's not really a fraud, but maybe it's useful in this functional aspect of the case or when we're trying to show the person's functional ability. Hey, judge, I know this person says they can't do anything and they're totally disabled, but here they are. They still seem to have a problem picking up their kid, driving around town, running their groceries, uh, going to Home Depot and picking up things, dropping people off. They don't seem to have these problems. And also, by the way, judge, they're telling their uh, – doctor in their functional evaluation that they can't open a door, they can't lift things, but here they are driving around for hours, you know, taking their kids places. So not the strongest thing in the world, but it's something. Uh, maybe we can get some more use of that video that we paid a lot of money for. The other thing is uh, clients also ask me all the time, hey, Greg, can I force them to do a functional capacity evaluation? Interesting thing in New York is while the claimant's under active treatment, no, you can't force them to do a functional capacity evaluation. And guess what? My adversaries hate them. They hate functional capacity evaluations. I love them. Uh, but we can write, when we ask the IME physician to perform an evaluation of this claimant, we can say to them, hey, do you think a functional capacity evaluation would help you evaluate their functional ability? And, you know, the IME physician say, yeah, absolutely. That, you know, we're hoping they say, yeah. And if so, we can then require them to go to a functional capacity evaluation. The rules also state that the claimant can then go and get their own functional capacity evaluation on their own. In my experience, none of them have ever done it, uh, first of all, because it's expensive, and two, because they're relatively objective and will show that they don't really have the complaints that they're complaining they have. All right, so that's a little bit about functional ability. And the last thing is vocation. And... You know, I've been doing this presentation a while, and I always put the words LOL in here because the vocational factors are not really well described in the disability duration guidelines. There's really only a couple paragraphs about it. And so what we're doing is, well, we're using labor market surveys and consultants uh, to go out there and sort of find uh, what is the transferable skills, what are the jobs that this person is qualified to do. Um, let's do things like let's get their job application for the job that they are claiming workers' compensation disability from and show that they have some transferable skills. Uh, what we have discovered is a lot of people are all of a sudden claiming that they never spoke English or that they, they're illiterate. And we say, well, who made this resume for you that you sent here when you got this job two years ago? Um, things like that. Um, 
other things. Uh, we're requiring them to complete a VDF-1 form. Uh, hey, we need to, we're going to check in and see if you had a high school diploma, any other certificates. We ask people when they come to the hearings, I want to see your driver's license. Say, do you have a driver's license? Because now the New York State driver's license are putting things like your hunting license, your boating license, um, your park pass in there. Uh, do you have a bow license? Do you have a black powder hunting license? All these things. I had a case in which the claimant was alleging a shoulder injury, but he had a bow hunting license on his New York State license. And when I asked him about it, he said, well, uh, you know, I, I don't bow hunt anymore. I crossbow hunt. Okay, well, you still got to crank up the crossbow. And these aren't electric. Oh, yeah, what's the tension pull on this? And you ask them these questions, and it turns out they're doing a lot more than they say they're doing. Um, in addition, uh, just on the basics of do you even speak English, I mean, I've had claimants come in who claim they don't speak English, and then, look, these dum-dums put themselves under self-surveillance on Facebook, and they're putting posts, yeah, in Spanish, but also in English. Well, I know you speak English because you're writing on your Facebook page that you speak English, okay? So those are some ways to getting at that. Anyway, the judge goes through, we're, we're going to present all this information to the court. Uh, both sides having impairment ratings, we're going to cross-examine their physician, uh, the functional ability. Uh, we're going to present proofs that might be video proofs. It might be proofs of them doing their current job or videotaping them while they're at work. I'm going to ask them to do a functional capacity evaluation. And we're going to present proofs about vocation if they make that an issue in the case. Ultimately, the judge is going to come up with a decision which is going to be expressed as in a percentage, and that's going to be called loss of wage earning capacity. Okay, The loss of wage earning capacity percentage is medical impairment alone is going to be multiplied by the average weekly wage. That's going to be uh, how we're going to get to exposure. Function and vocational ability is going to go to the duration of that award. So it's possible uh, for someone with a lot of function and great transferable skills, it should be possible for the, that to actually reduce the exposure in the case. I haven't seen that yet, but that theoretically is what's supposed to happen. Let me give you an example of how that could make sense. Um, I'm an attorney. Uh, I have to argue in front of juries. Uh, as an attorney, if I had my arm amputated, ripped off in a terrible accident, I might actually, uh, first of all, I probably have no uh, wage earning loss, but if I, I uh, was able to show that, um, maybe I'm actually even more sympathetic to a jury, particularly trying cases from the defense side, if I'm presenting a case to the jury and I have a visible disability on me. So I think there's some strong counterexamples uh, where someone with a good degree of transferable skills and high education, a physical impairment is really not going to be that disabling and it's not going to reduce their wage earning capacity. Um, so those are some thoughts. Uh, let's talk about some practical advice, okay, because what we've done or we've seen is uh, that the way it's set up in the law versus the way it actually plays out. What I've observed is their doctors are coming in with the very high impairment rankings, and okay, so I'm, coursing, I'm talking right now about loss of wage earning capacity. We're coming with very low ones, and the judges are kind of picking things in the middle, and we're seeing a lot of them uh, at right, in, right in the middle, like right at 300 weeks. We've done a lot of education with the judges in particular, and we've presented to them this medical uh, severity crosswalk. This is like the last couple pages of the Disability Duration Guidelines, page 120, 121. And the reason I'm bringing this up is uh, this is something definitely to bring to the attention of your counsel uh, when they're trying these cases on your behalf. A, it is impossible to be completely and totally disabled from a disc bulge, disc herniation, uh, anything from 11.1, 11.2, 11.3, 11.4 alone. Uh, under the severity crosswalk, the highest uh, disability you can get for a single level disc herniation or disc bulge is an 11.2J, 11.3J, 11.4J. 
When you go to the crosswalk, you see that those numbers equate to a four out of six, with six being totally disabled. That means a single-level disc bulge uh, herniation, even one post-fusion, cannot by itself totally disable someone. The most they can be is a 66% disabled. That's very important to know because it helps put a percentage, a real-world percentage, on what these actual severity rankings and impairment ratings mean. Uh, and we're making that argument to the judges. Like, judge, they're giving you a 4J. Great. They're starting with a 66. I've got a 4, uh, sorry, 11.2A. I'm starting with a 16%. Okay, so it's a 16 versus a 66. Uh, and I'm talking now in terms of percentages. So that's something uh, important that we can point out and educate the judges with. Uh, a lot of this, we're trying to steer the case towards a Section 32, and of course, when we do that, we got to consider the fact that carriers do need to make ATF deposits. When I am pricing out my Section 32s, I am pricing them out post-ATF deposit, meaning I am taking um, that value and reducing it by the amount of the present value of the ATF deposit. Okay, so that's a little overview of this topic. Um, Let's get into some questions. I'm going to come over to this computer. Just give me a second and go pull it over here so I can see what's going on over here on the questions. If you have questions, type them in right now. Okay, here we go. Um, okay, uh, first question comes from Sharon. Actually, right now it's the only question. So if you have questions, type them in. It comes from Sharon. It says, hi, Greg. It's Sharon. When should we ask our IME doctors to discuss a functional capacity evaluation? The answer is when you're scheduling the IME. Um, that's more, and of course, best practice, we're writing a custom letter to the doctor. We're saying, hello, I need you to evaluate this claimant. Uh, the, this is the admitted injury. Uh, here's all the medicals that haven't been provided to the board. And I want you to give me a comment, doctor, uh, when you tell me, has this person reached maximum medical improvement? Is there any disability? If there is disability, what is it? Could you please uh, give it to me in terms of disability duration guideline rankings? And doctor, would having a functional capacity evaluation performed help you to assess their functional ability as is required under the C-4.3? So asking the doctor that at the time you schedule the exam, we think that's best practice in cases where we think it's going to be an issue. Um, I'm very bullish, and I really do like functional capacity evaluations. I think they're incredibly useful. I think they're rather objective. I think that they're... Um, you know, there's a lot of credibility testing that goes into a functional capacity evaluation. And again, just having done this for a long time, I'm extraordinarily skeptical of a lot of these rather inquit, subjective, uh, low back claims, cervical spine claims, uh, where the, the only disability is sort of a, um, a radiculopathy that's confirmed over, you know, uh, without uh, things like muscle wasting, without things like uh, foot drop, without things like a loss of sensation that can be verified, um, you know, the, the uh, very subjective claims, I think, uh, can be weeded out using the functional capacity evaluation. So, yeah, that's the time you can do it. It's, it you should discuss with the IME doctor at the time the IME is being scheduled. Uh, you can also do it after you get the IME back, uh, but then you'll be asking your IME doctor for an addendum, not always the best uh, position to be in because now that's going to introduce some extra delay into the case. Okay, one more question also from Sharon. Uh, should we always ask the doctor about MMI and functional capacity on a normal basis? Yeah, so I think that's pretty much, uh, I think it's standard to ask the doctor about MMI. I think every time you're sending them for, a, for an IME, and remember, in the average New York workers' comp case, there's multiple IMEs being conducted because we're trying to steer that case to maximum medical improvement. Again, 
Physicians in New York are very resistant to ever releasing their patients. I think they look at them not as patients. I think they see them more as like an annuity that they're going to be charging for the rest of this person's natural life. Uh, so, yeah, I, we're always asking them, has this person reached maximum medical improvement from within your degree, uh, within a degree of medical probability and your medical specialty? I'm asking them that every time I get a chance to do that. Um, and the second part of your question, Sharon, which is, hey, should we get an FCE on a normal basis? Uh, it really depends on the case, right? I mean, particularly one where the person's complaints are way out of whack with the actual treatment. I'm very extremely skeptical of non-surgical low back claims, non-surgical serve claims. Like, really, it's so bad that you can't work, but you're declining a surgical option, particularly where they decline surgical options. I'm challenging those. Uh, so, yeah, so it's case by case, or rather, on whether or not you're going to get the functional capacity evaluation. And I want to remind everyone, they're not cheap. A functional capacity evaluation costs thousands of dollars, so we don't want to just do them willy-nilly, and we certainly want, don't want to really do them pre-maximum medical improvement. In other words, uh, if there is a question of there's oh, lots of curative treatment courses out there, and it's a merely, merely a matter of uh, selecting between them, uh, I wouldn't be doing the functional capacity evaluation at that time. All right, that's it. That's all the questions I got um, right now. You can always email me your questions. Uh, afterwards, I'll, I'll take a look at them. I hope everyone who's um, following along has got a copy of our books. If not, feel free to email me. We'll send them right out to you. Um, I just want to remind everybody, this is just a little part, these uh, live webinars, just a little bit of what we do. We do handbooks, lots of articles on our website, and we do a newsletter. Next month, our topic is liens and subrogation. We're going to talk about reimbursement issues under Section 29 in New York. I hope everybody joins us for that. And with that, I'm done. Thanks.